Well, good morning, everybody. All right. Well, hello, hello, hello. Good to see you guys. I want to welcome all of you to church today. Boy, we just had church a second ago. When death was arrested and my life began. Woo, yes. Glad to have you with us. Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Romans, chapter 8 this morning. We are in a sermon series called The Ultimate Lifestyle. I want to say hello to all of you joining us online as well. Wherever you're at this morning, welcome. We're glad you're with us as well. As I mentioned last week, if you were stranded on a deserted island in the middle of the Pacific, if you were to say to me, Pastor Wayne, I can only have a couple of pages of the Bible because that's all that could fit into my pocket, what should I have? I would say to you, Romans chapter 8 would be right up there for you to have with you because this chapter uh, speaks deep into our hearts as believers and it gives us some crystal clear clarity, you like that, on what our position in Christ is. And we talked about that last week in part one. So this whole sermon series about the ultimate lifestyle is for us as Christ followers to understand just who we are, who we are in Christ after we become a believer in him. So you can know what it means to walk in the Spirit. You can know what it means to walk hand in hand with God. You can know what it means knowing that God is for you and that he's not against you. So hopefully you grabbed an outline on your way in today. It's in your bulletin, all right? And uh, you can follow along with me digitally. Scan that QR code in front of you, and uh, we can get going. So are you ready, church? Here we go, part two. So today we're going to talk about what it means to be a Christ follower. Now, I'm going to use the term Christian a couple of times today, but as a whole, I don't really like that term Christian. Now, let me tell you the reason. Because in our world, there are a ton of misunderstandings and definitions out there. Some people don't even know what a Christian even is. For some folks, if you were to ask them, hey, are you a Christian? They'll answer, yes. And if you press in on them a little bit, they wouldn't really be able to answer and define what a Christian actually is. And for some of you, you've had conversations like that, talking with people about faith, and you probably asked them, so how did you become a Christian? And people give all different kinds of responses, don't they? Here's some of them that I've heard out there over the years. Some people say, well, I'm a Christian because I was born in America. Because somehow people think that our country is a Christian nation. Now, newsflash, congregation, it's not. And thankful to God that it's not, to be honest with you, okay? Some people will say, well, I'm not Jewish. As if to say, well, since I'm not Jewish, I must be a Christian, some people say, well, I'm a Christian because I attend Easter services once a year. That's nice, but it doesn't make you a Christian. Some people think that they're a Christian because they were born in church. Now think about that. What does that even mean? I mean, did mom go into labor in the middle of a service somewhere? I mean, 
No, really what these folks are implying is that their family was very active in church, and they've basically been attending since they were infants, kind of like my two kids. You know, born on Saturday and in church on Sunday, right? But yet somehow these folks believe through osmosis and proximity that because they were born in church that they are a Christian. Well, some people say, well, I was baptized. Hey, that's great. Baptism is a step of obedience in Jesus, but it in and of itself does not make you a Christian. Some people say, well, I'm a Christian because I go to church. I mean, I pray with the pastor. I sing all the songs with the band. And my response to that is this. If you were to walk right across the street to Round Table Pizza, does that make you a pizza? No, it does not make you a pizza. You may like pizza, but it doesn't make you one. There's lots of ideas out there. And there's just lots of confusion and all that sort of stuff on what it means to be a Christian. So our passage today in Romans 8, Paul is going to explain to us exactly what it means to be a Christ follower. So look at Romans chapter 8 with me. We're going to start in verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Verse 7. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. So Roman numeral number one in your outlines, there are three contrasts between believers and unbelievers, okay? And the first one that we're going to want to contrast is the way that we think now, okay? So letter A refers to our thinking, and you can see in your outline that there is a difference here. Unbelievers think with natural desires, and believers think with spiritual desires. I'm going to give you just five seconds to write those down because we're about ready to move off this screen here. Now I want you to look again with me at verse five, all right? Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. Now stop right there. Here is Paul. He's identifying non-believers right here. Those who live in the sinful nature, the natural way, the worldly way. Their mind is completely set in that spot. These are people who are not in Christ. Okay? And the verse goes on. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So there's this difference here. Christ followers have a different mindset. The believer is consumed with the values of the world, status, wealth, pleasure, all of those things. The believer, the Christ follower, is concerned about God, his values, his methods, his concerns for the world. Completely different mindset. Now, in Galatians chapter 5, and it's not in your outline, but Paul gives us a different picture, all right? He gives us a picture 
uh, uh, he contrasts the believer and the non-believer as well. So it's really the same picture. Sorry about that. But Galatians chapter 5, 1923, he describes it a different way. If you want to look at it later, Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 23. I'll read it. You follow along or just listen in. Paul says the acts of the flesh are obvious. Here's the list. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and then he goes on to say, and the like. That means all the other stuff he didn't say. These are the things that the Holy Spirit convicts us about. Things of the flesh. And he goes on to say, I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on in the very next verse to give us the picture of the mindset of the believer. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's a picture of Jesus. Now remember, this is one fruit, not many fruits, plural. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, here's what it says. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and if you know it, say it, self-control. Against such things there is no law. There's the picture, there's the contrast, congregation, between the unbeliever and the believer, completely different mindsets. The unbeliever thinks about the flesh, the ways of the world. The believer thinks about God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus, his ways. You all with me on that? Second one is an issue of attitude. Letter B in your outline. Unbelievers rebel against God. But believers submit to God. What do I mean by this? Well, unbelievers... You know, it's not like we're, I'm saying that they're bad people or that they're acting out in a horrible way. It just means that they are rebelling against obedience to Christ. Believers, though, submit to God, right? Unbelievers want to be the boss of their own life. They don't want anybody telling them what to do. They want to do their own thing. In fact, I jokingly say the most sinful song that's ever been written in the history of the world was Frank Sinatra's, I did it my way. <laughs> now, I don't mean to throw Frank Sinatra down the road, but you know the song. I mean, if you think about it, that's really the idea, though. I did my life. I did it my way, the way I wanted to do it. And that's kind of the point, isn't it? Doing things my way is the attitude of the unbeliever. Believer's attitude, completely different. It's one that submits to God. Now, are they perfect? No. None of you are perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm chief sinner in this room here, okay? But the truth is, when we sin, we experience conviction from the Holy Spirit, And when we do that, we fess up to it because we want to submit to God. We want to come back into alignment with his will and with his word. So if you are a true believer, I'm telling you, your heart will want to submit to the Lord when you've done wrong. Something inside you will trigger and go, oops, should not have done that. 
And by the way, congregation, you will fail. You will stumble. You will sin because you are still human. But at the same time, you will want to submit to God. We see it in scripture, verses six and seven now in Romans eight. Look at it with me. Chapter eight, verse six. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Verse seven. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So we have the thinking, we have the attitude. Now letter C is the area of pleasing God. Unbelievers, they can't please God. They can't. But believers are pleasing to God. Now I know the thought here from some of you might be, hey, you know, I got somebody in my life I'm thinking about and they're maybe a family member or a friend, right? Maybe they're not a believer and it's kind of like, well, you know, Wayne, so-and-so, they're a really nice person. He's a good neighbor. She's a good wife. He's a good brother. I mean, whatever the story is, they're, they're really nice people. Now I understand that, congregation. But I'm not talking about that. I mean, I've got friends that fit that story too. I'm not saying that they're horrible, evil people out there doing harm to people. I'm just saying they are not choosing Jesus. They are choosing to reject him. And by definition, they are not pleasing God. They are pleasing self. They're living in the flesh mindset. And scripture is very clear. Right here in verse 8 of Romans, it says this. Those who are in the realm of the flesh, say it with me, cannot please God. Now the believer, on the other hand, is pleasing to God. And let me add this. That has nothing to do with behavior. As humans, we all sin. This is an an issue of obedience to God and to his word. The believer has chosen to reject self and instead put on Christ as Lord and put on Christ as the head of the life and put on Christ as the boss in the life. You see the imagery there. That right there is pleasing to God. Congregation, are you with me this morning? Okay, now Roman numeral number two. The primary characteristic of A genuine Christ follower. Let's talk about that. This is really, really, really important, friends. I want you to go to verse 9 with me, Romans 8. It says, you whoever, you however, excuse me, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. That's pretty strong Bible language as far as I'm concerned. I mean, so let's pause here. We've been talking about this. Can an unbeliever have the spirit of God in them? No. Can a believer not have the spirit of God in them? No. Because by definition, all believers have God's spirit in them. Unbelievers don't. Now look at verse 10. 
But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Amen. So here's what's, inter- here's what's interesting about this whole chapter that I've been picking up on. Depending on your translation of Scripture, Paul references the Holy Spirit here 19 times. Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit is such a significant part of the believer's life. And you see it referenced in Scripture by the wording, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the Spirit. You see it all different kinds of ways. So here in your outline, here's what we can conclude. The primary characteristic of a genuine Christ follower is this. The Holy Spirit is inside the believer. Holy Spirit is living inside of the believer. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Paul says it a different way to the church in Galatia. He says, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. So as you sit here today, if you're watching us online, if you are a believer, if you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I've got great news for you. The Holy Spirit is living inside of you. Yay! I like to do that from time to time. Puts a smile on your face every time I do it. But church, it amazes me how many Christians just don't get that. Kind of blows me away, to be honest with you. They don't understand this power in their life. As a result, they continue living and focusing in the flesh. And God never intended us to live that way. Not as believers. He doesn't want us living in the natural sinful state. He wants us to live under the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Primary characteristic of a genuine Christ follower. Spirit of God living inside the life of the believer. That same spirit that's living inside the believer is the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. You got that? Get a load of that because that's big. Roman numeral number three. So how can I know that I am a child of God? That's a great question. How can I know? Well, Romans 8 verses 11 through 16 that give us a great picture of what a child of God even is. And there are four ways that we see here that we'll talk about them right now. So the first way that you can know that you are a child of God is letter A, I have invited the Lord into my life. Somehow in your story, you can pinpoint a moment in time when you invited the Lord Jesus to come into your life. As a result, you received the Holy Spirit. He took up residency inside of your life. And the blessing now is that you get the power of God into your day-to-day life. Look at verse 11. And if the Spirit of him who, what church? Say with me, who? Raise Jesus from the dead is living in you. Now catch this, right? Pause for just a second. 
I have no idea how much power it takes to raise someone from the dead. My hunch is, it's a lot. And we see that God did this a few times in the New Testament. And I want to continue to beat this drum right here. The same power. Not a different power. But that same power is in your life as a believer. The verse continues. He who raised Christ from the dead will also, what church? He will also give life to your mortal bodies. Why? It says right here. It's a great question. Because of his spirit who lives, where? In you. Now get, get on to that, church. That's an amazing truth. So when you invite Christ into your life, you get this awesome new power into your life. The same power that raised Christ from the dead. This power cancels your past. This power cancels your past, congregation. It cancels your past. It's going to overcome your current situations. And it's going to help you in the future. This power is going to help you change into the image of Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? Yay! Okay. <laughs> All right. So how can you know that you're a child of God? Real simple. You've invited the Lord Jesus into your life. Letter B. A second way you can know that you're a child of God is you have a, a desire to do what is right. When you become a believer, God starts working on you. He's working on you immediately and he begins to change you. He changes your want to's. In fact, one of the things that I enjoy talking to new believers about is their, their conversations. And they start to say things like this. You know, Wayne, it's kind of amazing. I used to go and do this. But now the Jesus is in me. I have no desire to go and do that anymore. In fact, that's some of your stories. And by the way, that's exactly the point. God changes your want to's. God changes the desire of your heart and he's constantly molding you and shaping you into the image of Jesus. He's given you a different want to now. Look at verse 12. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. So God begins to change that desire in our heart. Now, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will what? Die. But, I like how Paul says this, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. The text says here, by the Spirit you will Live, and here is the result of that. As a believer, you can no longer say this, church. You can no longer say, I can't change. How many people do you know in your life that say that? I just can't change. Guess what? That doesn't work. 
It doesn't work. Whatever your hang-up is, whatever your struggle is, whatever your issue is, listen to me, friend. You can change. Why? Because the same power that raised Christ from the dead is living in you. So don't believe the lies of the enemy, those strongholds, those things that make you think, that's just who I am. That's the way I do it. It's impossible for me to change, Pastor, so the heck with it. No! No! Those are lies from the enemy. He wants to keep you from becoming the new person that God is trying to create, one that looks like Jesus. So I just want to encourage you this morning, embrace this reality. God has given you a new power. His power creates within you the desire to do what is right. And through Christ, congregation, you can change. Amen. Letter C is I want God to lead my life. So I've invited Christ into my life. I have a desire to do what is right. And now I want God to lead my life. So in other words, my heart's desire is no longer to chase the worldly things, to pursue the wisdom of the world. Instead, because I'm being changed by Christ's power now, I'm setting my mind on things above. And now I'm wanting God and what he has for me and what he wants to say to me and what he wants to say about me, I want that in my life. So look at verse 14 now. For those who are, what are they church? Say it with me. For those who are led by the spirit of God. In other words, those who have Put Jesus in their heart. Those who have God's spirit in them, as we talked about in verse 11. Then the text goes on to say that they are children of God. And that's what God does. He leads his children. It's part of the care ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's just not going to let you wander off and aimlessly go do your thing. Uh-uh. You're his. He's not going to leave you hanging. He's not going to forsake you. You're his. Embrace that. So you might be asking, well, Pastor Wayne, how exactly does God actually lead our life? Well, I love Henry Blackaby. Some of you might know who he is. I love his material on being led by God. Now, Henry Blackaby um, his, his, he's passed away now. His material is a little bit old, but it's still very usable. It's really incredible if you ever want to check it out on spiritual growth. But Blackaby, in his coaching material, he tells us that the Holy Spirit is going to lead us a few ways. The first one is he's going to lead us when we read our Bible. All right? This is the illumination that we talked about in the prayer series. The Spirit will give you a personal rima. You remember that? A personal revelation when the logos is read, the, the words of scripture. He's gonna, uh, the second item is he's gonna uh, lead us when we pray during our prayer times. Third, he's gonna lead us through impressions. That's the, the conviction that the Holy Spirit gives us when we know we've done wrong in our life. 
He's also going to lead us through circumstances. These are those divine conversations and those divine appointments that we have with people in our life. We talked about that in the prayer series as well. He's also going to lead us through other Christ followers. God's going to bring other believers into your life that are going to help you. They're going to help you have discernment and sift through the confusion that life sometimes has. You know what times I'm talking about when you need somebody's help and you reach out to a Christian brother or sister and they help you? That's what I'm talking about. Those people are going to be used by God to help you navigate through the proverbial minefield because we all know life is like a minefield. Does that make sense, congregation? Okay. So you've invited Christ in. You have a new power. You have a desire to do what is right. You have God in your life, and you're wanting to let the Lord lead you. And the fourth one is this, letter D. Is that I relate to God in love and not fear. Now look at verse 15 with me. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, but rather the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, I love this, Abba, Father. Now let's hold right there. Go back to verse 15 for me. I want you to see that word, Abba, Father. This is a unique time in scripture where an Aramaic word and a Greek word are used together to form what we have in the English Bible. And they use that Aramaic word, Abba, and the reason why is because in the Greek language, there is not a tender enough word to describe the relationship between God the Father and his children. The Greek has a lot of words, but not one that's tender enough. And so instead, they use the Aramaic word. And that's why we have this combination of Abba, Father. And this word, Abba, what it communicates to us is a tender and sensitive and deeply emotional relationship that we can have with God as our Heavenly Father. And some people, they really struggle with this because they may not have had a good relationship with their earthly father. There's just too many bad memories in the past. But the truth is, congregation, we can't honestly compare the Lord, the Lord God, our heavenly Father. We can't really compare that and put that through the lens of the context of our earthly dads. It's not a fair comparison. God is so much better, so much greater than any of our earthly dads. And, you know, we have some good dads, some of us do. But they don't even compare. And so Paul's writing here, and he's talking about this intimate and loving and sensitive relationship that God has with you and with me as believers. So when you think about that, beloved, how does that impact your prayer life? Does it make it better? How does that impact on the way that you think and the way that you live and the way that you function in the world? Knowing that God and you are like this. How does it affect your choices? And you see in that text, 
the word adoption and sonship. In the first century world, got to get this picture here. Adoption was so much different than what we think about it. You see, in the first century world, adoption wasn't for little babies. I mean, we think of it like little babies and young children and that kind of thing, but that's not how it was. You see, in the first century, adoption was for grown adults. Here's why. Because the person who would adopt somebody would have been somebody who had wealth or they were in a position of leadership in the government. And essentially, as the patriarch of the family, they looked at their own children and they thought, nope, none of them are going to cut it. So what they would do is they would find somebody outside the family, probably in their 30s or so, and they would adopt them to come in and be part of the family. And that person would then come in and be a part. And then they would become heir when daddy passes on. They would become the trustee of the family estate, even though they weren't flesh and blood. It's a little different for us, but if you think about it, Paul is connecting this idea here to us adults. That God looks down from heaven and he sees you as a grown adult and in the midst of all of your sin and in the midst of everything that you've done in the past, everything that you're doing currently, everything that you will do in the future, in the midst of all of that, he calls you his own. He calls you son. He calls you daughter with all rights and privileges of being part of the family of God. Now I have to stop for a moment and think about when I was a kid growing up in church and every time I hear the term family of God, I think of that old song from the Gaithers. Maybe you might remember it's like, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. You remember that song? We're not gonna sing it right now though. But for some of you, it brings back some memories of the 1980s, the best decade ever. Never to be relived or matched. Sorry for those of you who weren't born then. You missed out on God's blessing, the 1980s. <laughs> some of you are like, Pastor Wayne, that was not the best decade. If you're a Raider fan, it was. All right. Look at verse 16 with me. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So let's be clear here, everybody. Not everyone is God's child. That's what the Bible says. Some people out there think that every human is God's child. It's incorrect. And they can think that all they want, but that's not what Scripture teaches. Now, it is true that every Human is God's creation. That's exactly what scripture teaches. But there is a difference between God's creation and God's child. So like we said in letter A here, the very first requirement is one must believe in Jesus and bow their knee to him to be God's child. Those are the only people who get adopted into the family. Those are the people that verse 16 is talking about right here when it says the Spirit testifies. 
It's not every human on the planet. So I've invited Christ in. I have a new power. I have a desire to do what is right. I want God to lead my life. I relate to God in love and not fear. So if you're here today, you're watching us online. If you've never bowed your knee to Christ, you've never asked him to be the Lord of your life, to be the boss of your life, let me be clear right now. You are not God's child. That's not where you are. That is the reality, friends. But you are God's creation, and he does love you. Jesus loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And I've got great news for you. He wants you. Yes, you. He wants you to become part of his family. In fact, he's inviting you today to become adopted and join the family with all of your stains, with all of your hangups, with all of your hurts, and with all of your addictions. He wants you to come to him. But he does give you the choice. And understand, you're not hiding anything from him. He knows everything about you. Everything that you've ever done. He's been watching you since day one of your life. Every single minute, every single day, he's been watching you. He even watches you when you sleep. He knows all the sins that you've ever committed. And in the midst of that, he loves you. He accepts you. And he invites you to join the family. And again, the choice is yours. And if you come to Christ, here's what's going to happen. He's going to place inside of you the same power Raise Jesus from the dead. He's going to put the Holy Spirit in your life. And guess what? Your identity is going to change. You're going to move from being in yourself and in your sinful nature to being in Christ. And so the question then becomes this. What hinders you from coming to Christ today? The Bible says, for all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So what does it mean to be a Christ follower? It means you've called upon him. You've decided in obedience to follow Jesus. You've decided to place your faith, your hope, and your trust in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You got that? Congregation, I'm going to ask if you'll stand and pray with me this morning. Father, we come before you today just to say thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for living a wonderful, perfect life for us. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins and rising again on the third day for us. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for the grace that you have given us, the mercy that you bestow upon us, that we do not deserve either one of those, but you give them to us anyways. So God, as we're here today, Lord, we want to say thank you for the, the blessing and the life of the Holy Spirit living with inside of us. And God, as I pray for believers in this room this morning, Lord, that we will have strength knowing that the same power that raised Christ from the dead actually lives in us 
And we can move forward in faith and not in fear. So God, help us to see that relationship with you as being something that is intimate and sincere and precious. Where we can call you Abba, Father. Help us to see that, God. And Father, right now I pray for anybody in this room this morning or watching us online that does not know you as Savior, who's not part of the family, Lord, but maybe they're wanting to step out in faith and trust you. So Lord, I just pray for them right now. I pray that they hear your call and that they're sensitive to you tugging on their heart. Congregation, if you're here this morning, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to let you know it's as simple as ABC. All you have to do is admit that you're a sinner. Then you need to believe that Jesus died for you. And he rose again from the grave. And then the third thing is, letter C, just confess him as Lord and Savior. Because if you call upon his name, you will be saved. And if that's you, let me lead you in a little prayer. Just repeat this in the silence of your heart. Just say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I admit that I have failed you and that I am a sinner needing a savior. I believe that you came, that you died, and that you rose again. I confess you as Lord. Come into my heart live with me for the rest of my life. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen.